Let's think about leadership for just a second. Like it or not, that season, which now seems to be upon us all the time when politics is front and center and somebody's always running for something, as that seems to always be before us, then the issue of leadership is always before us, right? And and so I've, I've been reading a lot about that. I, I mean, it's always been a fascination for me over the years. I was raised in a political family. That's just the way it was. Um, and last week we raised the question, what is it that we want in our leaders? What characteristics do we want in those who are over us in various capacities and various positions? And several characteristics have really come to the fore, not in America's political situation, but just in general leadership studies. And those characteristics that traditionally people have looked for are those that we would think about, I think, pretty naturally as being characteristics in those that we want leading us. Um, Always near the top of the list is integrity. Near the top of the list is always humility. Uh, Some call it self-awareness, just recognizing our own weaknesses and recognizing where I need others to strengthen me and make me a better man, make me a better leader. One of those is communication. Not just being able to pass on information, but actually communicating at a deeper level than that, inspiring others. One of those that is always near the top is gratitude. Just being thankful for where you are in that particular place of leadership, whether it's leadership in, a, in your own family or leadership over a corporation, leadership in a classroom, just being thankful for how God has blessed um, and allowed you to be in that place. One is influence. The ability to influence people, not by manipulating them, but by actually lead shepherding them, if you will, and influencing them in that way. Empathy, courage, respect, all of those are characteristics. Now, what we've seen in David and, and what we will continue to see is, I believe what, if David could speak to us today, he would say, the focus does not need to be on me as a leader. The focus needs to be on the one who is my leader. The one to whom I look for guidance and shepherding and direction. And he would point us to his God. He would say, it's, it, it's not about the leader that I am, it's about the leader that I have And so last week, as we looked at 1 Samuel chapter 22, we began to see, as we have throughout 1 Samuel, this comparison between the king who is on the throne, Saul, and the anointed king who will soon take the throne publicly, if you will, in David. And so we were kind of comparing them, and there's a a stark contrast there. God gave the people what they wanted in Saul. It's astounding to see that. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, they came to Samuel the prophet and they said, We want a king who will go out before us and fight our battles. More specifically said, we want a king like the nations. So they wanted a king who, like the nations, would exhibit power and authority and go out before them and win their battles for them. And Samuel didn't want to give them that kind of a king because he knew what would happen. And he took that before the Lord, and the Lord said, no, they've rejected me as their king. Give them what they want. Now, underneath this is this mysterious thing that we saw also a couple of weeks ago, is the plots and subplots of Scripture, how the main storyline of Scripture is headed toward that end that we see in, in even in Revelation. 
But underneath that are subplots. And a part of that subplot is that God uses the rebellion of his people, even the rebellion of Satan, to further his purposes. It's, it's astounding to see. And so that is true even in the people's rejection of God at one level, but at a deeper level, God is working his purposes and plans through that. So he said, go ahead and give them that king. And what they're going to see is that he's not a king who gives them. He's a king who takes. He takes and he takes and he takes. He will take your crops. He will take your sons. He will take your daughters. He will take your servants. He'll take your livestock. He'll take the very best that you have. And he'll give it to his own cronies and use it for himself. And you will cry out to the Lord, Samuel said, because of this king. And that indeed is what we see beginning to take place. And that divide between David and Saul is getting wider and wider, more stark. It's more clear to see. This week, it, it's there again. In this week's passage, we see a king who is seeking the Lord in his guidance. And we have another king who has rejected the Lord and is listening to whoever will speak into his life. And sometimes it's just his own heart, and it's a bad scene. We also have this picture of a king who comes and saves, contrasted with a king who kills. We have this picture of a king who is encouraged by the Lord through a faithful friend who sacrificially comes. And sacrificially puts himself underneath this anointed king. As opposed to the king who wants to, at all cost, hold his own throne and hold his own power. That's the contrast that we see. And we will see a king who is hunted, relentlessly hunted, yet protected. And we'll see a king who hunts, but not very successfully. And the Lord has rejected him completely. So that's, that's kind of what we see here. There's three separate incidences in 1 Samuel chapter 23. As you're turning to 1 Samuel 23, let's once again, let me read for you David's reflection on the reality of what we will see in this chapter, okay? There's the big plot, there's the subplot. And there's this understanding, this perspective that David has on what he went through in chapter 23 of 1 Samuel, and we see his perspective on that in the Psalms. David writes song after song after song about what it's like to be in the wilderness. I don't know if you remember, but back when we were right in the middle of the COVID deal, we spent weeks in the Psalms of Lament. Psalms that take us from our deepest wilderness place and turn our eyes to God. Well, David wrote many of those psalms during this season of his life. And here's what David says about this chapter in 1 Samuel 23. I'm reading from Psalm 54. Just jot that down and go back and read it. And the heading of it says, To the choir master with stringed instruments, a mescal of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, Is not David hiding among us? And here's what David wrote in reflection on this. Oh, God, save me by your name. Vindicate me by your might. Oh, God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. 
They do not set God before themselves. Selah. Verse 4, which is the center of the psalm. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies in your faithfulness. Put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble. And my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. That's what Saul, that's what David could say. That's the rest of the story, if you will. All right. So let's look at first Samuel 23. And as we read through this, I want you to look for a word. I want you to work, look for the word hand. Hand. Hand is going to be a prominent word in this chapter. You'll see it nine different times. And I want you to remember as you hear that word, that the word for hand in the Bible often is, is more than just a reference to a body part. It's a reference to power and control. It's a reference to orchestrating and moving. All right, so think about that when you, when you hear the word hand. As I was thinking about that and just working through this passage, the word hand that I've seen in so many places in the Old Testament, like in Isaiah chapter 14, it says, this is what it says in Isaiah 14 verse 26. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth, that this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations, talking about the, the Lord's hand. The Lord has purposed it. Who can annul it? His hand is stretched out. Who can turn it back? God's hand. Later on in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah says, I have, God says, I have engraved you in the palm of my hand. Talking about his covenant relationship to his people. He says, fear not, I am with you. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand, he says in Isaiah 41. Now, later on in Jeremiah, he says, because you have rejected me, my hand is against you. So just think about that hand as being that power, that, that, that possession, that control. So let's get to 1 Samuel 23. Now they told David, now remember, David is running for his life. And he has been hiding in a cave in chapter 22. In 23, they told David, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack them. Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? So his men are saying, we're up here hiding out in the mountains and in the caves and we're afraid. How much more if we go down into the lowland and into opened valleys and face the Philistines on open ground? So David, verse 4, inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise and go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow, 
So David saved, saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Now when Abathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now you remember, go back to end of chapter 22 just to help us get the context. And some commentators say that this portion of Psalm of, of 1 Samuel 23 should be right at the end of 1 Samuel 22 because Abathar is the only one who escaped when Saul had all of the priests killed. And he escaped to David. And David had the audacity to say, while I'm hiding out in this cave running for my life, you do not be afraid because with me you'll be in safekeeping. Okay, whatever, David. <laughs> but he did. He came to David. So, back over in verse 6. When Abathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David and Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. That's part of his priestly garment, part of, it, part of his priestly apparel. Now, it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. Now, David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, rose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come down to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in the Lord. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Horesh on the hill of Hikalah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there, for it has told me that he is very cunning. See, therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph, ahead of Saul. 
Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in Arabah, in the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told. So he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon, Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurried to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, come, hurry, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines. And therefore, that place is called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. All right, let's pray together. Lord, help us be in the wilderness with David to see your hand, to see your providential deliverance, to see the grace that comes even through friends and brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you that you are our stronghold. And we need to be reminded of that, Lord, and we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, all throughout the story of David and Saul, we have this contrast between what they hold in their hand, right? Every time it seems we see Saul, he's got what in his hand? A spear. Now, you'd think he'd be better with it than he is, but he's, he's not a good shot. At least that's, that's what we've seen so far. But we see Saul with a spear in his hand, and we've seen David in the presence of Saul with a harp, you know, with a stringed instrument. I I read this quote this week, and I put it in my notes. Saul and David were contrasted by what they held in their hands. Saul had a spear. David held a harp. The hand that holds the spear cannot grasp the harp player. And eventually, the one holding the spear would be left empty-handed, while the one with the harp will grasp the kingdom. That's what we see unfolding. But it seems to be a long way getting there, doesn't it? And it is a long, hard road to that throne that David is about to take. And over and over and over, we see the hand of God moving and working on behalf of his anointed. And over and over, we see the hand of God against those who oppose him. And that's a principle that goes throughout the scriptures, by the way, for God's that, for those that are God's. Those that belong to him. First thing we see when we look at this chapter, just follow along in your sermon outline there, is the king who saves and is saved. We see David guided and held by the hand of God. First thing that seems to leap off the page here as I look at this is that God's anointed king does not allow his own troubles and trials to consume him. I mean, for crying out loud, David is hiding in a cave, fearful of his own life and the lives of those who are about 600 men with him. And yet, when the anointed king hears that his countrymen in the land of Judah, those people in this city that are under siege, those who are in this this walled, gated city, this small village, if you will, of Keilah, they're being attacked by the Philistines. They're being attacked by the Philistines at the, at the harvest time. So the Philistines are there stealing their crops that they've already harvested. David, in the midst of his cave, hiding for his life, has a heart for the people that he will be called to lead. And so he leaves the safety of the cave, and he will not ignore the needs of others, And even though he's not taken the throne yet, he has that responsibility and he takes it and he acts on it. 
And in this small, walled, evidently village, because later on Saul says, that's perfect. He's in there, gated up and walled up. We can lay a siege and he'll be ours. That's, that's Saul's thinking. But that's where David goes. And the point here is that David's trials do not consume him and blind him to the needs of others. It's a good lesson there. Second thing we see in there is that God's anointed, even though this need is right before his face, will not act on it without seeking the Lord. Now, this is important for us to see. This is an important characteristic that we see in the life of David. What is it that marked the whole nation of Israel when God called Samuel to be the priest, to be the the spiritual leader of the nation? The word of the Lord was rare. In those days, nobody ever heard from the Lord that changed when Samuel came on the scene. Saul, for a while, was hearing from the Lord and being led by the Lord through Samuel. But then the spirit left Saul after Saul rejected God and his ways. And now Saul is in silence. But here's David seeking the Lord and he won't move until he hears from God. And in this section right here, David inquires of the Lord in verse two, shall I go attack And we're not told how he inquired. We're just told that he did and that God responded. That's the point. Later on, Abathar, it seems, comes with the ephod. Commentators say that he was already there and that probably David was inquiring already using the priest. And that means that God had given. But again, the point is not the means of inquiry. It's that he did. He sought the Lord and God answered him. So here he seeks the Lord. The Lord says, go, save the city. But David's men aren't quite so quick to agree in verse 3. We're afraid. So David inquired again on their behalf. I love that even. That even as a, as a leader, when those came to him with clear concerns, he doesn't call them out. He doesn't rebuke them for their lack of faith and being babies. Before he responds to them, he takes that to the Lord. Allah, what we see in Nehemiah, what we see in Daniel, and what we see in other saints. So he went back to God again, and God told him again, Go, I will give the Philistines into your hand. And he did. In verse 5, they went and they had a great victory. They took their livestock, their livestock being the Philistines' livestock. So whatever pack animals it was the Philistines took to steal the the crops, well, David and his men got them, and they saved the inhabitants of Keilah. That phrase there is important for us to see. A Savior has come, and he's accomplished his purpose. So God's anointed did not act until God had directed him to do that. Now back to this verse 6, where Abathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David and Keilah. Again, one priest is left. Where does he go? He goes to David. And what has he left? Well, implied in what he has left is that he has left Saul. He has left the king on his throne, left the place of, of worship that has been destroyed. And, and the picture here is that God's anointed to be now has God in his camp. Because the priest, much like the ark, represented the very presence of God. And so the priest is no longer with Saul. He is with David, with the king who will take the throne. And so what we see is that Saul's murderous, 
rampage against the priest and Nob worked out for the spiritual well-being of David. God accomplishing his purposes through the evil that Saul was carrying out. And so the priest is there with David now. And he's the sole survivor. And he comes with something in his hand. And it's that ephod. It is part of that priestly garment that represented the 12 tribes, represented the fact that the priest represents those people before God. And in the part of that garment, in the part of the high priest, was the Urim and the Thummim. It was the means by which they sought the will of God. We, I don't know what that is. And commentators will show us little stones that may represent that. But there's great mystery about what exactly it was that they used to seek God's will in specific situations. But that's not the point. The point is not whether they threw that and it came up snake eyes. The point is not how did they use those stones to determine what God's will was. The point was they sought God and he answered and directed them. The reminder for us is that we have a high priest seated at the right hand of God who is interceding for us. And he welcomes us into his presence in our time of need. We can go to him and pray to him and hear from him through his word. So the point that the writer here is not making is making is not about, well, what exactly did David do with the priest and with the ephod? No. The point is they sought the Lord and he answered them. The word of God is not rare anymore for those who will seek it. And so Abathar comes and the very presence of God, it seems, is represented there. God has moved into David's camp. But all is still not well in this first part because God's anointed king cannot trust the very people that he saves. And it seems that he recognizes that. So once again, he goes before the Lord. And David knew that Saul is plotting to harm him. He knows Saul is still on the rampage. And he says, Lord, O Lord, the God of Israel, once again, the king has a vision for who God is and who he is over his people. And, and David says, I have heard that Saul is coming to seek me. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down? Tell me, O Lord, he says there in verse 11. And God answers, yes, he will come down. Well, will these people surrender me? Will they betray me? Yes, they will. God is protecting and guarding David directly by a word to David. All right. And so David and his men there in verse 13 depart. And where do they go? Wherever in the world they can. They're just on the run. They're just fleeing for their lives it seems. But yet I see those lives right in the middle of God's hand. David is remaining in the strongholds of the wilderness. And Saul is seeking him every day. But what does it say there in verse 14? God did not give him into his hand. So here's David in this dark place. He is the Savior, yet he is needing to be saved. And God steps in and does exactly that. But there is a toll being taken on David's heart. There is a toll being taken on David's soul. Let's pick it up in verse 15. David saw that Saul had come to seek his life. And David was in the wilderness of Ziph and Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. 
And he said to him, this is Jonathan speaking to David, do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. And Saul, my father, also knows this. That's the first time we've been told directly that Saul finally gets it. At least at some level, Saul knows what's going on. And the two of them, it says there in verse 18, made a covenant before the Lord. I think they just reaffirmed the covenant they'd already made back in chapter 18. And David remained in Horesh, and Jonathan went to his home. There is a king who saves and is saved, and there is a king who is in difficulty And needs to be encouraged. He needs to be strengthened in the Lord by, as I told the kids, Jesus with skin on him. Someone who comes and and ministers him in a very personal way. Now, literally, or in a literary sense, it's important for us to see this little section here is in the middle of the chapter. So, in, in a literary layout, that means this is important. I think it's the most important part of the whole chapter. I think this part in the center here is is kind of the focus of everything around it, kind of like a chiastic structure that we saw a long time ago. Well, we still see that here. And here in the middle is something that we really need to pay attention to. Now, this account is the last time that David and Jonathan will see each other this side of heaven. It it makes that, it's kind of implied there. David remained at Horesh. And Jonathan went home. And so this is the last time they see each other. And in David's distress and in his dark circumstances, God provides again for him uh, this friend, this covenant friend. So David is at one of the lowest points we'll see him in his whole life. And he sees the reality of his life. Scripture doesn't gloss over any of this. David sees the reality of his life. What is the reality of his life? Saul is seeking it in verse 15. That's the deal. He sees that Saul has come to seek his life. And David sees this reality in the reality of his surroundings. And what is that? Well, he's in the wilderness. He's hiding in caves, in crevices. Later on in the chapter, Saul's on one side of the mountain going in and out of every cave, and David's on the other side of the mountain going in and out of every cave trying to get away from him. David is in the wilderness of his heart and in the wilderness literally. And he's in a dark place. And as he sees those surroundings, he needs to be reminded of God's promises. He does. I believe that's what's going on here in David's heart. He knows what God has told him. He knows what Samuel has told him about his place on the throne. He knows, but everything has fallen apart around him. And he's done nothing to deserve it. He's doing exactly what God has called him to do. And he's in the wilderness because of it. And his life is in danger because of it. And Jonathan comes to him in the midst of it. And I love the fact that Jonathan comes to him... And just reminds him of God's promise. That's what he does. Look at it again. Don't fear, David. Do not fear. Verse 17. For the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. And you shall be king over Israel. And Saul knows this too, David, uh, Jonathan says. Now, I shall be next to you is how the ESV translates. What in Hebrew actually would more literally mean, I shall be second 
to you. Is that a big deal? It is a huge deal. Because what Jonathan is once again doing here is basically saying, this throne is not mine, David. It's yours. It's yours. And he is, he is recognizing that in his actions and in his words. You remember what David wrote about 1 Samuel 22 in Psalm 57? That God fulfills his purposes for me? Well, he had forgotten that. And I forget that. And you forget that. And we need to be reminded of that. And Jonathan comes to David on this particular day with that reminder. I read an article this week, and I'm going to read you a portion of it. The article was actually written by John Bloom, who's at Desiring God. Now, the point of the article was this, and, and I'll, I'm going to read you a, a little narrative that he wrote. He says, the only thing harder for human beings than wielding the power that God gives us is yielding the power that God gives us. I'm going to say that again because we see it lived out before us every day. The only thing harder than wielding the power that God gives us or using it well is giving it up. And Jonathan comes and gives it up. And so here's, here's what John Bloom wrote. And, and it's a narrative. So I want you to use your imagination, okay? Just put, just, you know, just put your, put your toddler brain on again for just a minute. And just, if you need to close your eyes, just think about being in a cave with all of these men that are gathered around you. But you're in that cave with your dad and your brothers. Remember, David's brothers are there with him. So you're in that cave with your family. And as you're in that cave hiding for your life, the son of your enemy comes walking in. You have no idea how he found you. Isn't it interesting? Saul can't find him anywhere. And Jonathan marches right in. Here comes the, the, the son of your arch enemy. So this is the dialogue that John Bloom wrote between David and his brother Abinadab. So just listen to it. Abinadab had watched his fugitive younger brother receive Jonathan like royalty. He saw how David embraced him, talked so intimately, wept in farewell. What had David divulged to the enemy's son, he wondered. He stepped beside David at the cave's entrance as they watched Jonathan depart to serve beside his father, whose homicidal jealousy was forcing them to run like foxes and live like badgers. Abinadab said, David, you won't like my asking, but I need to. Is it wise letting him go back to Saul? David said, my life has never been safer than when it's in his keeping. Abinadab shifted uneasily. I know you love him. You're very loyal, very trusting. It's one of your great qualities. I just hope your loyalty isn't naive here. David said nothing. He just kept his eyes fixed on Jonathan. Abinadab continued, Brother, these are treacherous days. You barely escaped Doeg's loose tongue. And these cowards at Kelo would have offered you as a peace offering to Saul, despite the fact that you just saved their necks. 
If he came out of love, then he risked his life and all of ours. Why would he do that? David said, to strengthen my hand. Because he knows me. He knows how discouraged I get. David looked down and smiled. God sent him because he knows how dark it is for me. And I know God has promised me the throne, but there's barely a step between me and death. So it's like I forgot. David sat on the rock near his gear and he pulled some parchment from his satchel. I've been working on this psalm, Abinadab. Let me read you a few lines. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I find no rest. Today, David paused to clinch back his sobs. Today, he said, Jonathan risked his life to help me rest. And to remind me that God is not far at all. And what he said to me was, do not fear for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel. Jonathan believes God, Abinadab. It's his faith that I had to trust. Jonathan loves God more than he loves power and more than he loves me. And he loves me because he loves God. And that makes him the safest man in the world to me. He has no equal. David hung his head. I only hope he survives his father's insane faithlessness. So, David saw in Jonathan the ability to yield power. I'll make an application of that when we close. But that's what David needed. He just needs to be reminded of God's faithfulness. And he needs to be reminded of it because what has happened in the past and what is about to happen. And we pick that up when we look at what comes next. The Ziphites in verse 19 went up to Saul at Gibeah. Is, Saul, is David not hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh on the hill of Hilkalah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down. And our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. So here's the king who is betrayed and needs deliverance. And God's providential, sovereign hand provides that. So think about that for just a second. He needs this deliverance. What David had seen was true. Meaning he saw that Saul was seeking his life and now he sees it again. What he sees is true. Saul is after you, David. And what he experiences here is even more true, which is betrayal. The very people that he has saved are selling him out. Now, my tendency would be, and probably yours too, would be these losers. And, and part of that's natural on our part. Because what makes it worse is Doeg was, a, was an Edomite. He was not a, a Jude, he was not part of David's nation, part of David's tribe. These are, these people are from Judah. These are his countrymen. That's why he went to save them in the first place. 
But I'm ready to give him a little slack. Because I'm sure the talk in Keilah was, remember Nob. Remember Nob. That crazy king of ours had them all killed. And so, we don't want to be like them, right? I mean, I can understand that. David is not ascended to the throne yet. I mean, some would say they're showing loyalty to the king the way they ought to. But there's loyalty from a human perspective that has one vision, you know, one understanding, and then there's loyalty from a kingdom perspective that's much different. But from a worldly perspective, it's understandable, I guess. Saul is their king, and he is crazy, and he kills, and we don't want any of that. And so they come and say, we will put him in your hand. <laughs> I think not. It's interesting, isn't it, that the people who have not the Spirit of God, the people who don't have the Holy Spirit, don't really understand the work of God. And so Saul sees this as a blessing of God. Okay, may you be blessed by the Lord because you've had compassion on me. I find that a little paradoxical. May God bless you because you are, you know, earlier Saul said, you're all against me. It's a conspiracy. I'm in this by myself. And now all of a sudden the people are saying, well, Thank you for caring about me. May the Lord bless you. But you need to keep an eye on this guy because he is cunning. He is hard to catch. Well, not really, Saul. Jonathan walked right in. I don't know what your problem is. So, so pay attention. Note where he hides. Take good notes. Put your spies out there. And when, he, when you find him, I'll search him out of all the thousands. Well, so that's exactly what Saul does. He comes to hunt him down. And David has his spies too, evidently, because David is told that he's there. So David's on one side of the mountain, Saul's on the other, and, there, and there's cat and mouse game going on. But do you see what happens? By coincidence, yeah, you ought to snicker, all right? By coincidence, the Philistines attack in another part of the land. And for once, Saul decides to attack them. And what I see there, what we should see with eyes of faith there, is God's providential protection again, stepping in. What we see there is the invisible hand of God moving on behalf of his people. And once again, that place becomes a picture of escape. The rock of escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. Nothing has changed in David's circumstances. He is still in the wilderness, still in the rocks, still in the caves. And the hunt will go on, but not today. Not today. Because God delivers his anointed. It's so cool to be thinking about that. I had, I had a high school reunion yesterday. I'm not going to tell you how many it was. It was a lot. And I could write a book about the difference between this reunion and my first reunion. It would be huge. And what was, <laughs> what was amazing about it is nobody told any stories about that first reunion. Because it's amazing to see how God has worked. It's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, I had a long spiritual conversation, a deep biblical conversation 
with a guy. So when I was when I was a freshman, I ran for class president, and I beat Johnny. And when I was a sophomore, I ran for class president, and I won, and I beat Johnny. And when I ran for junior in junior class, I ran for vice president of the student body, and I won, and I beat Johnny. And I ran for president of the student body as a senior, and I won, and I beat Johnny. I whipped him every time we went against each other. And he and I were as different, on, on the, uh, at least from, from some people's eyes, as night and day. And he and I have become very close since then. It, it's, it's really cool to see. His wife, let's see, she died of cancer three years ago. And it, he, just, he just drew into the Lord. It was amazing to see. And so I, I sat there with Johnny, and we, we played golf together Friday. Uh, that was a pretty ungodly thing to see, but um, <laughs> our conversations were great. And so yesterday, here's the deal, I won't get into a long story, but just, he said, I've read through the Bible four times in the last three years, and we just talked about God's faithfulness. We talked about that big plot and those subplots that are working all the way through it. It was just the coolest thing. But over and over and over, that, that class of mine the stories were, this is how faithful God has been. We need to hear that. You have somebody sitting beside you today who needs to hear that from you. They need to be reminded of God's promises. Because they may be in a dark place and they just don't see it. Let me give you some quick points of application, okay? Now here's a big picture application. I'm reminded... Of what happened at the end of the Gospels. I'm specifically thinking about what happened in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 24. That the disciples are struggling. They are in a dark place. They're in a dark, dark place. And Jesus comes to them. And at the end of the Luke's Gospel in verse, 30, in verse 36 of chapter 24. They were talking about these things. Because... Jesus had come to those men on the road and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they got this Bible study lesson from the one who wrote it. And in verse 36, they were talking about these things and Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be to you. And they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do you, why do your doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when they, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it before them. Now, here's what I want you to see in verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. David points us to the Christ who must suffer. I think David, I think Jesus knew David, right? We can agree. And Jesus knew the Psalms. He knew 1 Samuel. He knew 2 Samuel or the book of Samuel together. 
He knew the story of David's wilderness wanderings and the faithfulness of the Father on behalf of his anointed. And Jesus knew what it was to be betrayed and not being able to trust the very people that you came to save. And so all of this points us to the Christ who must suffer. That is the reality of our King. And God help us from the perverted gospel and modern Christianity that says it should be easy and comfortable and we should be satisfied all the time in what we own and possess and our faith should be honored with health and wealth and prosperity. God, please kill that lie before it kills us. The Christ must suffer. And those who walk with him will suffer like David. Because they are trying to walk with the king whom the world opposes and hates. That's the big picture of what we see in this season of David's life. The Christ should suffer. And he can't trust himself to those that he comes to save. And that's the picture of what we have. And Jesus wanted them then and us to remember that in this world you will have trouble as long as you walk with me. You walk with the world and you'll not. At least maybe not right now. But he said, in this world you will have trouble. But I've said these things to you that in me you have made peace. You may have peace. He says, take heart, I've overcome the world. So our suffering anointed King David points us to our suffering anointed conquering King Jesus. That's the first thing it needs to remind us of. Secondly is this. Jonathan points us to Jesus too. David needed Jonathan. He needed to see him. He needed to hear from him. Now, he didn't need to hear Jonathan's update on his family. He needed to hear Jonathan reminding him of God's promises. And Jonathan did. You will have the throne. I know that. And I trust God to do that. And so just like those disciples were in that upper room, discouraged, and Jesus came to them, David was in this dark, discouraging place, and Jonathan came to him and and, and church. The person beside you needs Jesus with skin on him sometimes. When they forget God's promise. And when that dark place around them doesn't seem to have any energy to turn the lights on. I need you to step into my darkness and show me the love and light of Christ. And remind me of his word. I don't need your perspective on politics. I don't need to know what you think about the Panthers. I need to know what God's promises are. And I need to be reminded of his assurances for me. And I need to hear it from you. And this is an amazing thing that we see in Jonathan. Jonathan didn't just yield the throne that by all rights was his to David. He loved David. He encouraged David. He empowered David back in chapter 18. He protected David. He advocated for David in the presence of his crazy dad. And when David's hand was losing its grip on faith, Jonathan strengthened his hand in God's faithfulness. That's what it means. He strengthened his hand in God. And so Jonathan is an illustration here of what it is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Jonathan is an illustration of here of what it is that we saw in Jesus in Philippians chapter 2 when he did not consider equality of God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself of no reputation and was fully obedient to his father and came and served. Jonathan exhibits this reality. 
And so just as we look at Jonathan and David's last encounter on this earth, we just need to be reminded there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother from Proverbs chapter 18. And we need to be reminded that that threefold cord of one brother in Christ and another brother in Christ and the Spirit of God binding them together, of a sister in the Lord and another sister in the Lord and the Spirit of God binding them together, that that threefold cord is not easily broken. I need you, church. I need, I need all of you, but I need one or two of you right here. And you need that too. We need a Jonathan. And so, like we told the kids, like Jonathan, our Jonathan told the kids a few weeks ago, you need a friend like this, but you need to be a friend like that. And I tell you again today, we need friends like that, but we need to be friends like that. So when my faith grip loosens, you can strengthen my hand in the Lord. And when yours loosens, I can do the same for you. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we are weak, we stumble, we fall, and we thank you that you have, by your Spirit, chosen to come and and be among us, that you take up residence in that individual who, by faith, will turn from their sin and trust in you, and that you take up residence among your people as we gather, that you bind us together, Lord. In the eternal love of Christ. And we thank you for that. Father I pray that anyone who has not trusted in Jesus today would do that. They know full well the darkness of their heart. Your spirit has opened their eyes to see that. They know full well the desperation of the guilt that they carry. They know full well Lord the weight of the consequence of sin. And Father I pray that they would know by your grace the freedom that comes in Christ the sweetness of your forgiveness and the gift of your salvation made real to them. Father, I pray for that. And I pray, Lord, that you'd restore in each one of your children today the joy of your salvation and that you would use brothers and sisters in Christ to do that for us when we're unable to do it ourselves. God, grow in this church an army of encouragers, an army of Jonathans, an army, a family of brothers and sisters who are willing to yield up any prominence or power, any privilege, even any possession, and give it to one of your children for the sake of their spiritual well-being and encouragement. Father, help us, I pray, not just be encouragers but empowerers. Help us be the very presence of Jesus in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Father, we thank you for your presence in our lives today. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.